The Case of the Mule by George Patolo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Case of the Mule from the Saturday Evening Post, July 1, 1911. Without pride of ancestry or hope of posterity, the mule is the most valuable domestic animal we have. Captains of industry offend the public's nostrils from time to time, but this private of industry steadily increases in worth and in the esteem of men. He pursues his even course, stoutly doing his duty for a return of feed more or less irregular. I would draw your attention to the case of the American mule. He should not be approached in a flippant spirit. Practically all of the heavy labor in half of the states of the Union falls to the mule. The part he is playing in the newly awakened South and Southwest can be measured only in billions of dollars. There is a vast deal of agriculture and construction to which mechanical power is not and cannot be applied profitably. And in this realm, the hybrid is invaluable. Last year there were about 4,123,000 mules in the United States, representing a value of $494,095,000. These are government figures. Each mule, according to this, was worth $119.84. They will fetch considerably more than that today. A scarcity exists in the supply, and in numerous districts where a mule famine threatens with the advent of the cotton season, prices have gone rocketing. So we must take the mule seriously and treat him with respect. He is doing too important work for any other attitude. The honest toil he gives makes possible the cultivation of wastelands, pays dividends to stockholders in mines, builds railways through virgin country, digs irrigation ditches in the desert, plants much of the corn and most of the cotton of the United States, and brings millions of southern farmers to market. I have said that he is the most valuable domestic animal we have. The average price of horses ahead in this country in 1910 was $108.19. A mule represents over three times the value of a milk cow, 30 times the value of a sheep, and beats the steer several times over. It would take 13 swine to make up his price. The Threatened Mule Famine In this year of grace, the ownership of a mule in the southwest would split a family wide apart and start a feud between friends. He is worth his weight in good table butter, a form of appraisal every householder can appreciate. Colts just weaned bring from 65 to $100 each. If you offer less than $125 for a yearling, you hurt the owner's feelings badly, and he is apt to depart in a dudgeon. A span of ordinary unbroken threes of 700 or 750 pounds weight will fetch $275. A team of broken four-year-olds, which tip the scales at 1,000 pounds, can find a purchaser any sunshiny day for $450, and I have seen exceptional mules snapped up at $500 to $700 a pair. 
the truth of the matter is that they cannot be had in sufficient numbers to do the work of the south a farmer of my acquaintance who was seldom more than half a bale ahead of his meals was compelled to use several yearling horse colts to the plough this spring it was brutal i grant you and will ruin the colts but he sold his mules in the winter in the expectation of the price dropping and now he cannot afford to buy any at prevailing figures he is not an isolated case but a typical instance the habitat of our friend the mule is the southern tier of states and the southwest more than half the total numbers are owned in the south central portion if the average layman were asked where mules abound thickest he would exclaim missouri without an instant's hesitation but he would be wrong texas has wrested the palm from missouri just as she outstripped georgia in the production of cotton and will eventually lead many other states in their principal staples she had seven hundred and two thousand head last year as against three hundred and forty four thousand for missouri and they stood to her credit to the account of sixty nine million four hundred and ninety eight thousand dollars georgia and tennessee are well up i cannot find in official records that massachusetts new hampshire vermont rhode island maine or connecticut has any although morally positive that i have seen them frequently in those states new york has only four thousand and pennsylvania forty three thousand to begin with let me correct an impression of the two tenderly nurtured that the mule is a distinct separate species of quadruped he was not among those present in the ark no process of evolution produced this useful hammer-headed worker he is a hybrid a cross between a jack and a mayor of the horse tribe in some countries he is the offspring of a stallion and a jenny but that is extremely rare in america and such falls are invariably mean in their disposition and proportionately hard to handle so far nature is complacent and gives us the mule but beyond that she will not go no horse or mare mule can propagate its kind what few exceptions there have been do not shake the rule and need not be considered in any presentation of the subject of course the existing scarcity has projected a horde of men into mule breeding every small farmer who owns a mare is fired with that ambition today. the result will probably be a glut of the market in three years time and a consequent depreciation in value both in the horse and mule markets there are constantly recurring fluctuations the span of rise and fall in supply and price may be placed roughly at seven years as to breeding mules it is a complicated business a breeder must be prepared first of all to face a heavier loss in the get than in the breeding of horses with mules this loss varies from thirty to forty per cent as signifies nature's protest if excellent care be taken of the mares a higher percentage of success is possible on the other hand a breeder need not fear the high mortality among colts which the horseman must reckon with indeed the mule bears the same relation to the horse in respect to health as the goat does to sheep 
he seems immune to ordinary diseases. Epidemics seldom obtain any hold among them. They are subject to distemper, but it catches them in a mild form, and yields readily to treatment. Colic, too, can be relieved without danger, except only spasmodic colic, which is their most severe ailment, and will kill even a mule. Legend has done much to malign him. Nobody trusts a mule more than I, or has better grounds to do so. Yet there are facts, I must admit. He is easier to break to harness than the horse. He does not become bridle-wise so quickly, perhaps because he is tougher in the mouth and possesses much individuality. But if caution is exercised in the earlier stages of his training, a mule can be a gentle and infinitely patient helper. A mule is always a mule, you say. Half of that perversity of temper for which he is notorious comes from poor handling when breaking in or afterward. For once antagonized, a mule is remarkably set in his ways. Endowed with greater courage than the horse, he resents roughness with more venom and sustained determination. The mule's stubbornness is indeed but an expression of character. He has personality. What can beat his calmly judicial temper? What equals his patience? I have seen a mule bide his time for nine weeks to get a chuck-wagon cook into a favorable posture for a kick, there being certain accounts outstanding between them. He is never subject to panic. His nervous tremors are few and reasonably controlled. And he lacks the sensitiveness that often renders horses unsuitable for hazardous work and saps their strength in crisis. All these qualities make him priceless in a new land. THE BEST FRIEND OF THE COLORED POPULATION Nobody who has ever had much to do with mules can have failed to observe the marked variations in their character, variations as wide as those among men. Some are good, many are bad. There is the no-count mule, just as there is the van who ain't of no count. The vagabond, the moderately industrious, and the splendid energetic toiler. The mayor mule is more tractable than the horse mule, and will find a purchaser more readily. Not only does she behave in better fashion and harness, but her field matters are above reproach. Her brother, on the contrary, will chase stock round and round, and otherwise worry them, out of refined cussedness. Let us see what service the mule performs. In the corn and cotton belts he does the plowing and the planting for those staples. Also he hauls them to the mills and gins, and to market. The corn crop is worth a billion and three-quarters yearly to the American people. Cotton yields close to six hundred million dollars annually. In railway construction and irrigation projects, he drags the heavy scrapers from early morning to dark. He freights supplies in regions remote from steam and electric traffic. He takes the farmer to town, delivers merchants' goods to the smaller communities below Mason and Dixon's line, and is the most faithful friend the colored population boasts. When war raises its dragon head, the commissariat and the engineers send up a howl for mules. We use him in the cow country, largely on the chuck wagons and for windmill teams. In fact, when the heaviest teaming is to be done, 
when the work gets hottest, the cry goes out for the mule. In rough country, we even employ them for saddlers, especially in the mountains where their sure-footedness counts. But I could not conscientiously recommend him for the saddle. His forequarters are too narrow, thereby making the position of the saddle extremely precarious. A gentleman, late of Turkey Track, once handed me a mule in Arizona very politely, with the assurance that she was gentler than a dog. She was a small beast, with a soft, placid expression, so I mounted. Any lack of faith in human nature that the years may have developed, I attribute to that August morning. The hybrid threw me and the saddle, blanket, and bridle. She came from the fray as bare as the day she was born. And yet the girth was solidly buckled when the saddle flew from her back. There are many thousands of mules in the mines of America that have not seen the light of day in years. The finely strung organism of a horse could not stand the strain of this life. He would fall off in weight and go under. But the mule seems contented enough and is generally in fair condition. A thousand feet in the bowels of the earth does not appear to daunt him, and he drags the cars through the tunnels with the same phlegmatic calm as he would show on a dusty road under a glaring sun with a colored driver dozing on the seat. Opinion varies as to the best mule raised in the United States. Many look kindly on the Tennessee product. Unquestionably, the largest and handsomest mules come from Missouri and Kansas. They are very desirable beasts. To watch a team of giant Missouri mules drag a load out of mud or sand is a joy. There is no wild plunging against the collars, no waste of effort or squandering of strength. When the writhing black snake cracks over their backs, they settle down to the task altogether, and if the harness holds out, they will take the load to its destination. The Missouri or the Kansas mule has the bulk and weight. A hard, steady pull appeals to him, yet for all-round work in any sort of climate and any sort of weather, the Texas mule deserves the crown. He will average from two to three hundred pounds less than his Missouri rival, and nature has made him neither a pretty nor an impressive creature, but he is wiry, his sinews are tough, nothing discourages him, and he thrives on scant fare and in punishing heat. I followed results closely in some experiments made by a friend in an outlying portion of old Mexico. The insurrectos have been fighting fiercely, according to the newspapers, all over that section. The climate is very dry and deadly hot. Both Missouri and Kansas mules were imported for range work, such as freighting and agriculture. They were fine, upstanding mules, big of bone and muscle, but expectations were not realized. The climate proved too much for them. Thereupon a carload of Texas mules was bought at much lower figures. They stepped to the work in grand style and flourished, and they are still there. For a moderate climb and very heavy work, the Missouri and Kansas mules undoubtedly lead. But for any brand of weather and all manner of toil, give me the Texas product a mule of about 900 pounds weight, with some of the hardy Spanish strain in him. Mules attain their maximum value in this country in South Carolina, where the average price last year was $158 a head. 
in new mexico where their use is confined largely to nesters who usually own poor specimens and in nevada the price has been lowest only seventy nine dollars a head in the event of war values would soar amazingly the most punishing work of a campaign is trapped to the shoulders of the army mule and no conflict was ever waged in modern times without a loss of many thousand hybrids in the spanish-american war something of an innovation was tried orders were issued to teamsters to treat the mules gently and abstain from beating them except when unavoidable also they were given quite extraordinary attention who ever heard of such regulations it was a horrible shock to men who had been reared in the notion that a mule was born to be clubbed and fought that he was the natural enemy of man to be subdued by brutality however the result amply justified the step the death rate was appreciably lowered and more effective work obtained supplying the foreign market exports of mule from this country have been comparatively insignificant they have seldom exceeded six thousand head in any year as the home markets have demanded all that could be got during the boer war however american dealers sold to british agents nine million eight hundred and twenty two thousand dollars worth of mules that was in the years nineteen hundred o one and o two a vast number of these were undoubtedly below standard and were well got rid of many more were outlaws south african veterans still tell weird tales of the army mules sent from the united states but the british had to have them and the prices rose steadily in nineteen hundred there were shipped forty three thousand three hundred and sixty nine head at an average price of ninety dollars and thirty eight cents in nineteen o one the shipments fell to thirty four thousand four hundred and five at ninety three dollars thirty one cents a head and in nineteen o two twenty seven thousand five hundred and eighty six at ninety seven dollars sixty cents as a consequence of these exports there was a slight diminution in the number of mules in this country in the following year but it did not exceed twenty nine thousand and was recovered the next season today mules would command for army purposes a substantial advance on these recent war figures for not only can they be less easily spared but the purchasing power of a dollar is not what it was in nineteen hundred the best export price ever obtained was three years ago when the average was a hundred and forty nine dollars and ninety cents a head if a person sits down and figures the profits of mule raising on paper nothing can approach it as an attractive rural occupation except a chicken farm or hog raising but like those industries it does not work out so munificently in actual practice it is true that mules cost little to keep they can be bred at small cost and their maintenance is not so expensive as that of horses in fact a mule can live in pastures in which a horse would starve to death for he is an able rustler and the toughest kinds of grass suffice even in famine quantities the same as to grain when he is stall fed yet an amateur breeder will most certainly meet with a loss unless the fates take a special personal interest in his fortunes there are leaks in the business which only the professional of ripe experience can watch and guard against 
and the matter of salesmanship is one of the most significant factors. To be successful in handling mules, one must be an expert horse trader, possess the imagination of a real estate agent, and have a few tricks up one's sleeve in addition. Therefore, let no ambitious soul rush into mule breeding because of the present alluring prospects. Despite the menaces to the venture, some tidy fortunes have been amassed in it. Especially is this the case in Missouri, Kansas, and Tennessee. In those states, scores of small farmers have grown prosperous in handling mules, but be it remembered that they bred the finest mules on the continent. The jacks employed are huge fellows, worth from 600 to $1,500. The mares are heavy, draft animals, and the product is a strapping creature weighing anywhere from a 1,000 to 1,300 pounds. In the more western regions, the Spanish mule, as he is called, most of the Texas mules are of the Spanish strain, is in the majority, but each year sees an improvement in the breed and a tendency to raise a big mule. Some ideal ranges for mules lie in the open west country. Montana, Wyoming, and New Mexico have vast stretches of land, but they run sheep instead. Indeed, the sum total of mules for these three states does not represent more than enough to stock a dozen good ranches. Texas runs sheep, too, and armies of cattle, but in the southwestern portion, in those parts where the local weed has not struck its root, are many mule ranches. It is a rough country, sparsely grassed and scantily watered, but the Johnson and Bermuda varieties of grass there offer fine feed, and land values are so low that a range will give a fair profit in grazing. Most stockmen figure 15 acres to the cow in the broken country and 20 acres to a mule. The Cowboy Who a Wooing Went Now as to the mule's personality, of which mention has been made. It is best exemplified in his strong likes and dislikes. Consider his loyalty to a friend. Sometimes a mule will form an attachment for another, or even for a horse, and then separation means misery for everybody concerned. Unless his partner accompanies him wherever he goes, he will either not go, or the rascal will stop and bray every hundred yards to the intense chagrin of his driver. We were camped one night on the Arizona border at the abandoned T-4 headquarters. Three outfits were pooled a total working force of 78 cowboys. More than a dozen mules were being used in the wagons, but the pride of the saddle bunch was a pair of small blacks. These were ridden to gather the horses every morning, and they were staked regularly each night on the confines of the camp. Jim Parker forgot the love one bore the other when he set out on a night to see a girl. It was not more than 10 miles away, and he threw a saddle on one of the night mules in order to spare his horse. Then he departed stealthily, for it is not wise to let a camp of seventy-eight men know when you go forth to call on a lady. Hardly had we snuggled into the blankets when the beast he had left behind discovered its loss, tilted its nose to the sky, and began to bray. For an hour he screeched and squalled and tugged at his stake rope, I released him, for we needed the sleep. He struck across country at a hopeful lope. 
Jim was in the middle of a tender speech when the second mule arrived blithely at the fence surrounding the lady's father's yard. There broke out a clamor of joyous recognition. It was of no avail to pretend ignorance of it. Parker could not open his lips without suffering interruption from the other side of the fence. Unable to endure this cruel separation longer, the hybrid he had ridden tore loose from the post and ran to rejoin his chum. Jim followed. He reached the fence in time to see his mount clear it cleanly. The mules set out for camp, whinnying to each other affectionately. Jim arrived in the gray dawn on foot. We were all up to welcome him. Note. If Parker should see this, it was Pink Murray who released the mule. End of The Case of the Mule Read by Mary in Arkansas